You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Moen Subramaniam, who is a professor of strategy at IMD over there in Lausanne. And he's also the author of this book here, The Future of Competitive Strategy, Unleashing the Power of Data and Digital Ecosystems. Welcome, Moen. Thank you, Greg. Pleasure to be here. Now, look, this is an ambitious title, The Future of Competitive Strategy, because that kind of means that everything else that's been written is all about the past of competitive strategy. I teach competitive strategy. I've been teaching it now for about 20 some odd years. And we're faced with this challenge of how much of the old competitive strategy do we want to retain and how much do we want to replace? And it's interesting because at least in the context of academics, it's not an old discipline. They've been teaching strategy in the military academies and so forth for centuries. But in business schools, I remember it was in early 1991, I think when I took competitive strategy for the first time, it was incorporated into the core of my business school. And it wasn't even called strategy. It was called something else. And usually when I start my competitive strategy class, I start off walking through the origins and Michael Porter and industrial organization and structure conduct performance. (laughs) When I teach it now, I still teach all that stuff, but I've had to add on new classes in data strategy and digital strategy. And I guess the question is, does that even make sense to think about, okay, there's this old strategy and then we're going to add on this new stuff? Or do we have to go back and just rip everything out by the roots and start all over? That's a terrific question, okay? And I actually believe that the future for a majority of firms, okay, is what I call legacy firms, Mm -hmm. the firms that built their legacy way before the internet, is a combination of their old legacy strengths and the new kinds of strengths that they can get from the modern digital world. So I firmly believe that the future of competitive strategy is about building on your existing legacy and moving forward. So why do I call it the future? Because the old or the older principles that were developed, and you rightly put it as, you know, from the industrial organization economics, they were rooted largely in the industrial world. Mm -hmm. So I talk about three fundamental premises that kind of capture that world. One is that for most legacy firms, all their revenues come from their products. Yeah you'd find it hard to find legacy firm products. By products, I mean products and services. So whether it's a bank or an insurance firm or whether it is a caterpillar or whether it is a whirlpool, 100% of their revenues come from their products and services. And the second very important concept that Michael Porter introduced, one among two, the concept of value chains and the idea about how value chains can help position products and also embed a lot of our capabilities. And third, of course, for what Michael Porter is most famous for is the nature of the industry, which again comes from that history of industrial organization, which, you know, essentially says that there's not much you can do if the industry structure is stacked against you. But a lot of strategy thinking or competitive strategy was about what products, what markets, how do you position your products by organizing your value chains? And of course, you know, how do you marshal the forces in the industry for competitive advantage? That's the base. Now, why is that inadequate, if I put it this way, when you go for the future? And for that, you just have to look at which are the most valuable companies in the world. And it is not these legacy firms anymore. So these are new breed of companies. We all know them as the digital platforms or digital titles or titans or digital natives, whatever you call them. But for them, none of these assumptions actually hold. Many of them, you know, 100% of their revenues come from data, not from products. They don't have value chains, they have digital platforms. They don't amplify the value of their data through industry structure, they do it through their digital ecosystems. So the question is that if they are the most valuable companies in the world, and we are not, and they are following very different assumptions and principles and premises for their competitive advantage, what about us? And for quite some time, And as you probably are familiar with, we used to think about the Microsofts of the world as some unique company. They're these tech companies. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they do their thing and we do our thing. And, you know, the worlds are different. Not so today. What my hypothesis is that increasingly, 
legacy firms will have to find ways of expanding their revenue base beyond their product and service world into the data world. And if you want to compete with data, it requires different principles. You have to figure out what digital ecosystems mean for you. They're not the same as what Uber's digital ecosystems are or Amazon's digital ecosystems are. They're different. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand what those digital ecosystems are. And you have to figure out how to expand your business scope beyond what is defined by value chains through digital platforms. Now, all firms may not be able to do it, but you at least have to understand that the scope of your value-creating opportunities has changed. And if you don't see it in that way, then you may become irrelevant. So that's what I mean by the future. It doesn't mean that the old principles are defunct. They're important, but they're not enough. And so it's not just the old industrial organization that needs a kind of reboot. It's also kind of the old theory of the firm, right, as to where the boundaries should be. And, you know, that was driven in part by a limited notion of resources and capabilities and core competencies, right? And so maybe, you know, we can walk through each one of these sort of conceptual shifts. And maybe the first place to start is with this notion of industry, because that's where we start our strategy classes, whether it's Harvard or IMD or wherever you are, right? The very first thing you'll do in the very first week with the very first case is be like, okay, so what industry is this company what in? Was right? <laughs> like, and, and we still have like SIC codes. Do you remember SIC exactly. codes? What the heck is the SIC code for Apple? What, do they still do that? I mean, it depends on what the researchers do, you know, in terms of how they want to frame their empirical domain. So first of all, maybe start off like, why did it make sense? To a lesser extent today, why does it make sense to talk in terms of industries? You're a beer company, you're a car company, right? You're a financial services company. And why is that concept less useful today? That's a great question again. So, you know, I mean, if you go back to the industrial organization roots, if you remember, I mean, the early empirical IO, the objectives of that research stream was not meant to advise business, but it was meant to advise governments. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that why are some industries more likely to be monopolies and what should governments do to disallow or prevent those industries from turning into monopolies? Advertising intensity or R&D intensity. These were some of these factors or variables that the IO economists picked up saying that, you know, if you see these are red signals or these are danger signals, that these are the industries that are likely to be and of course, tacit collusion and market concentration. If there are few firms, they're more likely to collude and so on and so forth, right? The fundamental motivation was very different. It was to prevent monopoly power. I think what Porter's brilliance was that he came from that world, but he flipped the story around to tell firms that, hey, you know what? We can use this wisdom the other way. Which is to say, we are not interested in being in perfectly competitive markets. We want, you know, above normal profits. We want rents, right? This is what we want. And so how do you do that? You use those same principles that the earlier IO economists had derived as drivers of likelihood monopoly to kind of say, how do you get an advantage, right? And that was a huge jump over earlier frameworks of strategy, which was largely around what products, what markets, and, you know, are you going to new products or new markets or both? Or, I remember Ansoff, and those were the early frameworks which did not allow you to get into any analytics or any kind of empirical depth in terms of what is your strategy and how do you measure competitive advantage. So that was great. But like I said, the primary assumption of that world is that your revenues come from products. So your products are your competitive weapon. And for that, industries make a lot of sense because then industry structure can amplify the value of your products because of how you manipulate the forces in the industry and how you create not a monopoly per se, but you come close to monopoly power, right? So that made a lot of sense. Why doesn't it make sense today is that if you're competing not just with products, but with data, a lot of stuff changes. Let's start with competitors, right? One of the big benefits of saying, okay, this is the industry in which we are in is to identify who your competitors are and know how they are positioned in the market. And then you differentiate yourself from them and you build capabilities better than them and so on. Now, how do you define those competitors? These are 
companies that offer similar products. But in this world, in the digital world, your competitors are those who also have access to similar data. And they may not be the same firms. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example. I call them, by the way, I call them digital competitors. Right? Mm -hmm. These are competitors who have access to the same data. So say you're a light bulb, okay? And you have sensors on the light bulb and, you know, it detects motion. Now, because of that data, you say, okay, you know, if nobody's supposed to be at home, I can connect the light bulb to maybe a security system, okay? And maybe I expand my value scope from just giving illumination to getting into security services. Now, that data is caught because of motion could be acquired by any other firm, right? It could be furniture in the room, it could be cameras, it could be, and it could be dangerous competitors or formidable competitors like Alexa or Google and so on. So it changes how you look at your competitive score. And also in terms of buyers, right? I mean, if you go by you know each of these five forces, if you want to put it in that way, in terms of what an industry is, how do you look at your buyers in the industrial world? Buyers are those who basically buy your products. But in this digital world, your customers or buyers are those who actually give you data. Now, that's a very different ballgame. Selling a product and getting data from customers is a very different proposition. I call them digital customers. These are customers who give you sensor data. And it is not as simple as just putting a sensor on a product and saying, okay, you know, to get the acceptance of customers and frame the features of data for those customers are very different from how you frame the features of a product for your mm -hmm. customers. And that's why, you know, the premises are different and that's how you have to think about strategy differently. Now, you know, the old principles are not defunct. They matter because the greater your product footprint, the greater your promise in terms of getting digital customers. So Nike has a natural advantage over a smaller sneaker company if it goes into trying to get sensor data from customers. Now, whether they do it or not is a different issue, but they start with an advantage. I call it the incumbency advantage in the digital world. And typically in the industrial world, you look at an incumbency disadvantage because your value chains give you rigidities and you don't react as nimbly to customers. But here... The bigger your value chain infrastructure, the greater your product footprint, the more powerful your digital ecosystems can become. But of course, it requires a different way of framing and thinking about competitive strategy. Yeah, but in a way, this is compatible with the resource view, right? After Michael Porter came along with his sort of industrial organization framework of five forces and so forth. Then we had this kind of resource view. And the way I've always thought about it, and this is how I initially began to teach about the importance of data, is to say, well, look, if you have this data, there's all sorts of other ways that you can monetize it, right? So, you know, if Disney has this wonderful intellectual property content, well, you know, they can go into the toy industry or they can go into the movie industry. They can go into the theater industry. If you're in oil company and you have this wonderful supply of crude oil, you can go into the plastics business and you could go into the jet fuel business and so forth. So can we just think of data as a resource and then leverage that kind of resource view of things? Yes and no. Again, I'm a fan of the resource-based view, but I'm also in many ways a bit of a critic because anything and everything is a resource and it becomes valuable or inimitable and they don't give you the necessary specificity that you want. But there's a different angle that I would like to point out from what you mentioned about the ability or the potential of a resource to help you expand your scope, right? And this is what an, a, a closer or an allied concept was core competence. In many ways, the resource-based view was an elegant theoretical framework. Core competence became a much more widely accepted concept among practitioners to understand, okay, what's your core competence and all that. But the idea of core competence and, of course, the resource, and, of course, data could be a resource, it still requires rethinking in the modern digital world. Let me put it this way. The idea about the breadth of the scope that your core competence allows you to take is still based on you 
having the capabilities to compete in different mm. markets and you do it with your strengths, right? So if you take Honda, you know, they were what that the famous joke, right, about Honda. I, I don't know if you've heard about that, right? How many Hondas can you fit in a two-car garage? Well, two cars, a lawnmower, a, a, a boat motor, and so that, that's the joke, which is essentially signifying that the core competence can allow Honda to compete in different markets. But you see that there's still, it's their strength by which they're competing. In the digital world, it is different in many ways. So if I have customer data, and again, this is a different kind of data, okay? I call it interactive data, mm -hmm. as opposed to what legacy firms have is episodic data. And episodic data, a quick example would be if I go to Barnes & Noble and I spend two hours and I come out with one book, they have some kind of data about somebody buying a book. Whereas if I spend two hours on Amazon and I buy nothing, <laughs> they have a very different kind. It is not based on any episode. It's based on... Now, sensors and IoT allow legacy firms to capture that interactive data. The difference that data makes is that it can be shared with external entities in real time. The light bulb example that I gave, that in real time, if I am sharing the data about tracking motion in a house where nobody is supposed to be at home with a third-party security company, I'm moving from my core business of light bulbs into something else. Mm -hmm. But the difference here is that security business is not my business. I could do many other things with the light bulb with data. One of the examples that I was pretty intrigued by when I was in Boston, I had a friend who was the CEO of a startup where he was experimenting with a sensor that detected sound. And the idea was that in a street lamp, if it could detect a gunshot. Okay, so now in real time, camera feeds come in, AI comes in to understand whether the accident is serious. And if so, it goes into ambulance and police and so on and so forth. Now you see the same light bulb is getting into many different businesses because of the nature of data. But there's a huge difference. This is not about diversification. This is about opening up your APIs, just like what a smartphone does, right? In a smartphone, it's not Apple's responsibility for an app to be successful. The risk is not with Apple. The risk is with the app developer. In Honda's case, the risk is Honda's. If it moves from cars to lawnmowers, it better figure out what to do with lawnmowers. It's not enough to say, okay, I've got the competence to use that motor, but it needs to think about the business model very carefully and the risk is theirs. So, I'm not saying this is true for all ways of driving new revenues. This is an example of how a product becomes a digital platform. Like a light bulb is a product, but now it's a platform because it connects with third-party entities through data. And in those kinds of business models, the expansion of scope has a lot to do with innovation in terms of sensors, the kind of data you can get, and the possibilities of connecting it to multiple third-party entities. So it's a very different way of looking at value. Now, if you ask me, is data a resource? Yes, of course it is. But it is much more nuanced than saying that I have some unique data. Yes, data has to be unique. If your data is not unique, you'll have a lot of digital competitors coming in and doing the same thing. But it may not be in your hands. It depends on what kind of product you have and what kind of data you can get from that kind of product interface and what kind of business models you can generate from that. So I still feel that the thinking requires different frameworks. At its core, you might still say, yes, I'd give one more example to say how the thinking of core competence or the resource-based view logic can preclude you from looking at you know, new opportunities or reducing new threats. So this is the case of Domino's. 2016, I think the new CEO came. And this is before COVID. And I just wanted to mention the COVID part there. But in 2016, it was not very obvious that a pizza company should be in the delivery business. Not obvious. In fact, most of its competitors said, that's not who we are. What's our core competence? We make pizzas. Okay, but this CEO said, no, it's not just that. Now, at that time, 
they probably did not realize the significance of that decision of saying that we are going to get into also we are going to control the delivery business because what that meant was that it allowed them to get what we call first party data and now they have direct access to the customer and they're getting valuable customer data companies like nike and all us would give their right arm procter and gamble unilever today to get first party data but they will it's very hard for them to get that quality of first party data that an amazon could get because of the breadth of the interfaces but dominos as opposed to say pizza hut or some of the other competitors have an advantage from that data that they can do things with it so why is it a different view because if you think in terms of you know what's my key resource and even if it is data it would be what okay i'll say okay i've got data about my supply chain i've got data about my warehouses i've got data about my distribution channels all episodic data whereas the interactive data comes by thinking differently by saying that i need that now the problem i have with the resource based view is that it can swallow everything now you can say okay okay even this is a resource but it doesn't allow you to think about the consequences of decisions when you don't get the so you have to look at it differently to my world it is that you are in the product business if you want to expand into data driven revenues you have to look at strategy very differently yeah i remember when i first started teaching data science we would talk about how marketing could be made better right through the application of analytics and the collection of data and operations could be made better and hr could be made better so our initial kind of understanding of the importance of data focused on these kind of traditional verticals and you could then start stitching them together and saying well if i know all this in marketing i can feed it back to and so it was like the old school walmart supply chain logic but a little bit on steroids and it was only over time we began to realize that this has profound implications for the organization of the firm and the linkages within the value chain and you have a whole chapter where you talk about APIs and that's the focus of my digital transformation class because it's really about looking at that value chain and that complementary network and saying that what used to be an input just for me could be an input for somebody else and what used to be a supplier to me can then be a different supplier right by breaking down the process into these smaller bits you're allowing for this continual reorganization of the value chain and so at some point i mean there's a discontinuity where the whole structure of the firm has to be reexamined right absolutely so the scope of the firm is very different because the beauty about the theory of the firm and I mean, that's why we respect those thinkers and those researchers is that they left blueprint which has very broad ramifications you could think of the theory of the firm and say that well we can still look maybe the boundaries of the firm are different because of the differences in transaction costs today mm-hmm. or those kinds of things but that is retrospective what shall we say hindsight analysis that now makes sense saying okay but we want frameworks that allow us to think forward saying it's not that after you see some firm doing something and then say okay it makes sense from the theory of the firm that's a very academic exercise in my mind but if you want to impact practice you have to give frameworks that tell you that in your business what makes sense what is the new value that data can give you what's the nature of the digital ecosystems you can build and how does it influence your competitive advantage now it may fit in with the theory of the firm i'm not denying that but we need to now i think move forward with more specific frameworks for the new world that we are in and of course we are able to think about these new frameworks because we have the wisdom of the older frameworks so we have that base covered but we need to move forward and just a quick point about what you said about how do we use data i have a somewhere in the book i mentioned this and i use this in presentations and they generally make a big impact on ceos and senior decision makers i say with episodic data the idea is to support products mm-hmm. that is with bansa noble how many books am i selling and which franchise is selling that and all that but with interactive data the idea is that your products support data 
which is that your products are conduits for new kinds of data that then expand the scope of your business. When Even when you're looking at data as a resource, the conceptualization is very different. Is your resource something that supports a bigger competitive weapon, which is your product, or whether your product is now just a means to get something that could be of bigger value? So the digital platforms, for them, it is very intuitive. The platform per se is not the product. It used to be. When Facebook started, that was what it was. But they couldn't make money out of it. It's only later that they realize that the platform is just incidental. It's a base by which you have created a whole network which gives you some strength. But to use that network, you have to get data. So the platform basically supports data. Now, how do we think of it in the product world is the strategic challenge for companies. Not all companies can do it. But if you think of it that way, you can start looking at ways by which you can expand business scope. Now, just to be clear on the difference between these two types of data, I remember I did a project for a really large company and they were tasked by their CEO to figure out how to monetize their data. And so they were like, okay, who should we sell it to? <laughs> it's like, no, you don't want to, you do not want to sell that data because that is your key resource, right? You know, that you'll give away the entire value of the company if you sell that data. But with the interactive data, right? There, you're not in danger necessarily of losing your competitive advantage because you're not revealing information about what you know about the customer or what you know about the process. You're just allowing them to tap into your sales channel, so to speak. I remember I had someone speak in my class who said, you can be a platform, you can be an app, or you can be both. And to be a platform means that you are effectively like reselling other people's stuff. But to be an app means that you are selling your stuff through someone else's channel. And they're both perfectly legit ways to engage strategically. Absolutely. The point that you mentioned, right, about uh, the difference between the episodic and interactive in terms of how do you create value, with episodic data, you think about it, you never use it in real time. Mm -hmm. The moment I say, if I buy something at Barnes & Noble, the cash register registers that sale. That's the episodic data point. But it is not used in real time. It's kept, stored, archived, aggregated, and then the insights come after that. Those insights, no company would share. And it doesn't make sense to share. Even internally within the company, they're very hesitant about sharing. But when it comes to interactive data, you have two parts to it. One is the real time, which the digital platforms, by the very nature of their business, had to share in real time. So with an Uber, unless you share it in real time between drivers and drivers, the platform doesn't work. So there is a natural understanding that there is a real time element and we have to use it. We don't see that with episodic data because we don't see the value in real time at all. But for legacy firms, that difference is still not very clear. So if I give an example, say I'm Caterpillar and I have an excavator and it has just finished digging. Now, in real time, the sensor in the machine is picking that, okay, I finished my job. Now, it can do two things with it. It can use it just like episodic data. The difference being that this data is coming from a pinpointed source, which is the excavator. And over a period of time with multiple such data points, you can get a lot of insights about the machine, how it works in different conditions, its productivity. Now, that Caterpillar will never share with anybody. Mm -hmm. Okay? But if you think about the real-time data that I've just finished digging, that can be shared with some concrete pourer or some other fabricators. Yeah. God forbid, even Komatsu. Okay? <laughs> now, because that value of that real-time data is transient, it just disappears. Just that data point that I've just finished digging is of no competitive value to anybody. Now, but if you don't see it in that way, you don't share anything. Yeah. And that's why with most legacy firms, if you think about APIs, the APIs are there. They're all internal APIs. I mean, you know, okay, you have ERP systems and SAP and Salesforce and all that. We all understand APIs from that way that we are sharing data internally. But this is about open APIs, which only apps and platforms have done so far. 
But now it makes sense for product companies also to do that. So the light bulb example, if I go back there again, is an example of an open API saying that I've got data on motion. Now it depends on who wants it. I can give it to you. Mm -hmm. It's real-time data. It's of no competitive significance. So that opens up new value-creating opportunities. And that is a significant difference that uh, when you were talking about sharing data that I wanted to highlight. Yeah, I always show in my class the quote from Jeff Bezos from 2003, the API mandate that he released. And I say, you know, if there was a Nobel Prize for management, right, the first one would have to go to Jeff Bezos because that was in 2003. That was 20 years ago. You know, I think it was the fourth plank, which was that all of these APIs have to be externalizable, right? He didn't say that they all have to be open. He just said that they have to have the capacity to be made external, every single one of them. And to me, that is just so incredibly prescient, right? To say, we don't know how this data stream is going to be used. We don't know how this functionality might find value. So we're going to leave open the possibility or the option that this may be valuable to other people besides people inside the company. And I think that insight from 20 years ago at a place like Amazon, it still hasn't caught on. Yes, of course. I think if you go and talk to a typical CEO now, they know what APIs are and so forth. But 20 years ago, no one, CEO didn't even know how to spell API. It's astonishing how, first of all, how quickly this thing has happened, but also how slowly it's happened. They're both astonishing. True. But there's also this, right? With many legacy firms, when you give an example of Amazon, they say, okay, it works for them. It doesn't work for me. And in many ways, that was the motivation of my book also. I was very, very clear Mm -hmm. that for me, I mean, I would give examples to demonstrate a concept or a point, but the frameworks and the applications were designed for legacy firms. So what's a digital ecosystem for a legacy firm is of what was of interest to me. How would a legacy firm differentiate between episodic and interactive data? Because for Amazon, episodic data doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be there, but it's irrelevant. Their whole value comes because of interactive data. And it's obvious to them. It's not very obvious to legacy firms. Now, I spoke recently to Jeff Immelt, and I was asking him about the whole digital transformation experience at GE. And of course, I don't think you really want to talk about it that much. But, you know, you contrast the GE experience with some other companies like Caterpillar. And I think we would all say that the GE had the right idea, but the execution was botched, right? If you are at a legacy firm, you know that you need to go digital. You know that you need to base everything on data. You know that you have to move to ecosystems. What are some of the mistakes that you make? And you talked also about digital myopia. I love how you referenced Ted Levitt, because I always quote Ted Levitt in all my, you know, he's a classic with marketing myopia. What are some of the pitfalls that these companies make? Is it more that they don't see the need or is it that they botch the execution? It's a bit of both, but I think, you know, if you look at it, they would do things with data-driven initiatives, if I put it that way, in ways that they would never do with their product business. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really compare how they do their digital initiatives and if you compare them with how they think about their product businesses, you know, and if you point it out to them, they realize that, wow, I mean, we never thought about it. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? It's a very bad thing because they do things without really thinking about it in adequate depth. The product world, they've grown to know so well that there are routines in place, right? Now talking about resources and capabilities, right? There are routines in place for good practice, product development or something. So with digital, if I step back, I would like to differentiate between two value-creating avenues. And sometimes... Most companies, they mix the two up. They don't see them as different. One avenue is that you can significantly improve your efficiencies, internal efficiencies through modern technologies. You can increase the sources of data. You can use AI. You can have flexible API architectures to share data in new different kinds of ways. And you can definitely improve your efficiencies of your value chain. I would still say that 80 to 90% of the digital initiatives that are happening in many of the legacy firms are in that realm. The other side is about using data to drive new revenues. Now, that's a very new thing for companies. 
Now, the efficiency part does not need radically new business models. It's your existing business models, but it is a creative thinking in terms of how you use modern digital technologies. I would say that we are in the same space where we were when, you know, IT first, internet, information technology first came. Let's just get our ERP in place and yeah. And so from the silos that we had initially to ERP, now ERPs have also created a new set of silos that they are all straight jacketed for specific purposes, which were designed for, you know, you're a business manager, you say, I want a dashboard, I want this data. So, okay, they'll design a process for you and they'll give it to you. In today's world, the possibilities are much bigger than what you would have anticipated. Chat GPT tells you, you know, that you can ask broad questions. How do I reduce the average time to make a car? How do I make sure that this quality control issue doesn't happen again? Things like that. And you have the ability to capture data from a variety of different sources and use AI very, very differently to answer. That is still not happening, but it is still not a new business model. But when you are trying to drive new revenue services from data, which is the other wing of how you can create value, there you need to have a business model. If you don't have a business model, you make a mistake. And many legacy firms start with this. And this is with Jeff Immelt also, right? Which is that they just got carried away with the promise of all these new kinds of data and technologies that they thought Going into, okay, I'm going into data-driven services. What does it do to my existing business model? What changes should I make? That was not very well thought out. Even with Caterpillar, if you follow Caterpillar today, they have gently stepped back from giving a lot of new revenue-generating services by telling their customers saying, oh, we can give you idle time or we can give you the productivity of your machine. If from that, they're using data from their machines to actually predict which machine is likely to be replaced or which machine is likely to have service. But you notice that the issue is that efficiency play fits in with their dealer network and with their existing business models. If they want to move out of that and go there, they have to rethink yeah. a lot of things. If you don't have that business model in place, you'll make a mistake. And I think a lot of companies are blaming digital. The other thing they do, there'll be 100 different digital initiatives happening, even for efficiency. Every little business unit will say, oh, let me do some AI, let me do some blockchain, let me do this, let me do that. There's no, and you would never do in your product business. Would you think of doing that? I mean, putting 25 different plant capacities all at random everywhere, you would never do it. Because you think in terms of scale, you think in terms of capabilities, you think in terms of how do you get these products out. You think through those business models very carefully. So that is, I feel, a pretty big shortcoming today. The good news is that we have not lost out anything. We have time. And the danger that legacy firms will face is that if they don't act on this, they are likely to be commoditized in a very different way. You know, we think of commoditization as what? I mean, somebody else is coming with a cheaper product, a lower quality product, and it is squeezing my margins. This is a different kind of commoditization. This is saying that I'm giving data-driven services and features, and the product is becoming less important. The data that it is generating and the experiences that it's generating, the data is more important. So if I'm giving you just a product, and somebody else is giving the product plus mm -hmm. some features, then I get commoditized. It has nothing to do with quality or any of those kinds of things. That is the challenge. And if companies don't start thinking about business models very seriously, they can get commoditized. Now, you also talk about consumer or kind of the customer-facing ecosystem and then the production. Consumption ecosystem. Now, what I like yeah, is that yeah. you map this onto a XY frontier. So, you know, we love these frontiers, right? I think for a lot of companies, they struggle in both areas, but some actually manage to figure out one, but not the other. You talk about Ford quite a bit in the book, and I think Ford is a company that's trying in both directions, but they encounter all these frictions. Are you faced, do you think, with the same frictions? I mean, if you're going customer, then you have you know your dealership network and all this stuff. And the production side, you've got all these different fragmented tier one suppliers. You look at a Tesla that comes in and just says, okay, look, we're tightly coupled. 
we're going to be completely integrated. We're not going to have dealers. We're going to rely much less on our tier one suppliers and so forth. And so they can really move quickly. You look at a company like Ford, it's very difficult for them to, they can look at the Tesla and say, well, we want to be like that, but they have all these frictions in place in both dimensions. Is it easier to kind of I, go in on a production way and then figure out the consumer side later? The answer to that it just depends depending on the business. Right. But let's take the Tesla and Ford comparison. A lot of people asked me when I was writing the book, why did you pick Ford? In the very first chapter as the example. And for me, it was to make a point that this is about legacy firms. Mm -hmm. And you can't get more legacy than Ford. So this is a legacy firm which is doing this. Now, I don't want to give an example of Tesla because again, it, you know, a lot of people say, okay, there's a new age digital company and all that. Now, the way I look at production ecosystems and consumption ecosystems, I look at production ecosystems as networks or digital networks coming from your value chain. That includes your suppliers, dealers, all the way till the product is given to the customer. So that entire network. Now, when you say that if Tesla has come in with a business model that eliminates dealers and simplifies the suppliers, they can make that production ecosystem tighter. There is no doubt about it. So it's easier for them to generate shared data across that and integrate that and create a lot of consistency. So there's no doubt about it. The interesting part is the consumption ecosystem, which is that now that the product is sold and now there are a whole bunch of external complements. I give the example of you can talk to Alexa on Ford and say, I want coffee. And so it will take you to the nearest Starbucks. And so basically it's Starbucks, the bank, and all those things are connected with real-time data coming out of the car's location or the driver's choices and so on, right? So that's the digital ecosystem in which you consume your product. Now, does Tesla have an advantage in that? Yes, of course it does because it's a new age company. But interestingly, Ford is making more inroads in their B2B business side within these consumption ecosystems. So say fleets, if my fleets are connected, I can give a lot of services based on real-time data for the fleet. Now, they could come from your production ecosystems in terms of predictive services and trying to reduce downtime. Or it could be other logistical services. You know, if it's a truck, I'm just throwing this example as a, because I've seen some other companies do that. When your driver is feeling sleepy because of the way he's driving the truck, he or she. And automatically, you ask the driver to go to the nearest motel, just park the truck, go to sleep, get up after eight hours and drive. Everything else is taken care of. Now, because of APIs and because of connections with banks and credit cards and whatever it is, right? It's all done. Now, there they have an advantage. So, I have been seeing now, after the book has come out, when I talk to a lot of companies and I work with lots of companies, that the B2B space for legacy firms is a very promising space. It's more circumscribed. It is more controlled. You have lesser issues of privacy, of data, which is every time I talk about, oh, real-time data, you can share data. Oh, what about privacy? That's a much bigger issue in B2C businesses. And you might be seeing a lot of very quiet progress happening in the B2B arenas. Honeywell and companies like that, yeah, Siemens, they're doing things there. And they're less visible because they're not like Amazon or Facebook, which is so much on the consumer end, or say even Tesla. So I'm pretty, you know, optimistic and confident about the frameworks, which is to say the frameworks by themselves are pretty straightforward and simple. There are basically two, three key points, you know, difference between episodic interactive. Just that tells you a lot. And you could ask yourself, do a, a kind of inventory analysis and say, well, what percentage of your data is interactive? Most legacy firms will say it's less than 10% mm -hmm. or 5%. And they can come from your assets too. It doesn't have to come from customer, but you can do much more with efficiency if they're coming from assets. The second thing is about production and consumption ecosystems, which is that's the structure of your digital ecosystems. And today you're not in your consumption ecosystems, that's fine. But at least focus on your production ecosystems, build your efficiencies, and think of generating data-driven services from your value chains if possible. And of course, third is then looking at your business scope.
and business models if you're trying to generate new revenue models. So if you have these fundamental tenets in your mind, then you know you can start shaping or at least investing in initiatives that take you there. And the last thing you want to do is to have a myriad of digital initiatives that are decentralized that everybody is trying to experiment. Everybody wants to do an app. Everybody, right? I mean, whether it's a bank or whether you want to do digital or have an app. What's the business model, right? What benefits are you trying to give to the customer? And that, by the way, is another big difference, okay? When you're developing a new product, it's very natural for you to think, what is the product offering my customer? Mm -hmm. What's the value proposition? With data, typically it, it is, I want data because I want some value out of it. Very rarely it is that I want data because I want to give a value proposition to my customer. That thinking is still not coming. And I'm with lots of companies that I talk to, that distinction is so stark. They'll never do it with their product business. But they routinely do it when they're talking about digital initiatives. Well, I've heard it said that we're seeing a shift from product centricity to customer centricity. And the way I think about this is traditional companies would come up with a product and then they're like, okay, it works well with this customer group. Now let's go find some other customers that want the product. Oh, it works in America. Let's go try it in France or whatever. And now we're moving to customer centricity, which means that kind of once you get your foot in the door and you've got a customer for one thing, then you can start rooting around and observing and figuring out like, okay, well, well, they probably need this. And then you say, well, okay, I don't make it, but I know somebody who does and I'll make sure that they have access to the customer through me. And if that's the case, then the hard part is the customer acquisition, right? The hard part is just getting that first nibble, like getting your sensors on site. And if that's true, then the legacy companies, they seem to have a, a huge advantage. When you look at startups, that's always the challenge. Like, how do you get customers? How do you get customers? What's your customer acquisition cost? Legacy companies already have customers. Why aren't the legacy companies fending off all these startups if they already have their foot in the door? And it seems like all they need to do is do a better job of collecting and utilizing that data. You quote Eric Schmidt, right? The URL. And I don't know why I've never seen that because I always talk about this, right? But it's like ubiquity first, revenue later. That's in line with this idea that you got to get somebody using your product and then you can start, you know, learning more about the customer. So why are legacy companies being displaced in some of these areas when their starting point is so advantageous? So that is exactly what I call incumbency advantage. Mm -hmm. Exactly that. So that's your incumbency advantage. You have a bigger footprint, you have bigger value chains, you have naturally bigger digital ecosystems to start with. But how are you using it? It can also be a double-edged sword. I'm making $80 billion out of my products. If I start getting into this data nonsense or whatever, you know, 100 million, 200 million, three, I'm not interested. That also happens. That is, it takes time for the revenues from data mm -hmm. to start coming in. And it takes time for the features from digital to get entrenched and established. You have to realize that, you know, companies like Facebook waited for nine, 10 years before they started monetizing anything. So the advantage with startups is that they're hungry. Unless they get it, they die. Mm -hmm. The legacy firms have the incumbency advantage, but they'll say, well, maybe I don't need it now. Yeah, like you talk about Babolat, I think it was Babolat tennis rackets. I never heard of right. this, but, you know, why didn't Wilson or Spalding or whoever makes tennis? They're also coming up. But you see the, where the incumbency advantage comes in. Let's take toothbrushes, for example. Oral-B and Sonicare, mm -hmm. who are the leaders in electric toothbrushes, which is their incumbency advantage, also leaders in the digital yeah. toothbrush. And it's not that new startups are not coming, but it is much harder for them. Yeah. But Oral-B and Sonicare can do far more. But those are the tips that we talk about in the book. That is, these are customers... For you, there were customers who bought your electric toothbrushes. With smart toothbrushes, these are customers who are giving you data. So the URL or the, the ubiquity first kind of argument is more for the data side, which is that if you want to enhance the feature or the power of the features that you're offering through data, say algorithms that can predict the cavity, you need 10 million or 20 million customers who are giving you that data. 
these features are not there when you begin. It's not like a razor where you are saying, okay, you have a razor with five blades. I'm giving you one with six blades. The customer sees six blades versus five blades. The ability to predict a cavity comes after time. It's very difficult to convince the customers for that. So you can't start off by monetizing those features when they don't exist. So the platform companies understand that, right? The product companies, they get torn between this, saying that I'm putting a sensor that costs about, uh, you know, $3 more. And, uh, you know, there's all this investment going into R&D and so on and so forth. These are my my break-even. is So I have to price the toothbrush higher. And why would I buy it? Why would I switch from an electric toothbrush to this? Because I don't see the benefit. Mm. Who thought about the benefit of Uber? And if Uber had come with a pricier thing, saying that, oh, it's far more expensive for me to do it, nobody would have switched from a cab. At that time, it was much easier to hail a cab. Mm-hmm. So oh. I think the advantage that we have in the legacy world is that we have observed the platform world. Most of us have a pretty good understanding of how those businesses operate. But for me, it is remarkable that they will wax eloquently about you know what the platform businesses are doing. And when you push them into, okay, what about your business? then the, the, the thinking is very jumbled. Yeah, Very hard for them to get clarity in terms of saying, okay, this is what we can do. And I'm not blaming them because they have to be answerable to their shareholders and stakeholders and boards and so on. And it's not very easy when they don't understand the promise as much. And there again, I've seen, you know, if you're investing X million dollars to improve our efficiency through AI, they'll say, okay, go ahead. But, you know, the same X million dollars saying I want new business models that generate new revenues from data, they'll say, wait a minute. I don't know, because it's riskier and the risk-reward trade-offs are very different. Yeah, you know, I recently just paid some taxes here in the city of Berkeley. And if you want to pay anything online, if you want to pay taxes or penalties or fees, you have to pay extra. And I thought, this is nuts. You should get a discount if you want to set up a, a profile. And, okay, city governments are going to be behind, but... I remember it wasn't too long ago when banks did this, where they would charge you extra if you wanted to do electronic banking. And in retrospect, of course, it would have made sense for them to pay you to open up an electronic banking account because of all the data they could get. And so, you know, you've watched that over time. You've watched that over the last 20 years, how the kind of light bulbs went off. I sometimes say to my students, change doesn't happen because you see the light. It's because you feel the heat. Uh, so yeah. when you're looking at the legacy companies now, do you see the change still being motivated by pressure, competitive pressure, or have we gotten to the point where the leadership in these companies can look forward and say, hey, you know, we got to do this before we have to deal with the pressure? That's a great question again. I see there are three kind of related issues. One is companies that face pressures on growth, that their product businesses have plateaued and there's nothing much you can do and they're getting commoditized, not because of data, but because of competition. They will be looking for new ways of growth, not necessarily through acquisitions or diversification, but through data. So that's one motivating factor. And my hypothesis would be that companies that are under pressure there for growth, and they still have cash, they are the kind of companies who are more likely to think through this more carefully. Second, of course, is those that are under competitive pressure. So auto industry is a classic example. Autos, they're very worried and concerned about what's happening when the role data is playing in their world. It's very obvious that the nature of competition is very different, not just through EVs, but you know, especially with autonomous cars coming in, the whole business model can change and their traditional value chain-based advantages can be very rapidly commoditized. So that's that. And the third, is the entrepreneurial firms who recognize that they're leaving money on the table. You're saying that, yeah, there's a huge opportunity out here. Why aren't we doing this? And for each of these cases, right, I think it's very important to have the frameworks in place because in each of these three cases, whether it is a lack of growth or competition or you know money on the table, if it is still restricted to the product world, they would still do it. They will find ways to do it. Because the frameworks are familiar. To do that with data is a different ballgame. That's what I've been trying to emphasize, that it is not the same. have to think differently. And that's why the first question that you started with, right? <laughs> why the future? 
just so the past i think over a period of time it'll become more and more it's a commodity thing that we understand this but we need to understand this new frontier well last question in a lot of fields academia is out in front of the world right certainly in certain areas of scientific research but sometimes academia lags behind and <laughs> they're trying to figure out like how to explain what's happening around them do you think that business schools are keeping current with what's happening out there in the business world. I remember I used to have a colleague who said that if you want to learn how to run a 19th century railroad, go get an MBA. <laughs> he said this, of course, like 20 years ago, but are we keeping up the top business schools? Are we keeping up uh, giving our students the skills and the mindset and the tool set that enable them to survive in a world where the old strategic instruments might be a bit outdated? Terrific question. If you think about academic research in business, and I mean, I can speak for strategy research, which you are also familiar with, which, you know, what 99% or 95% of the research is done very, what shall I say, you look at journal articles and then you say, okay, this is the state of the art. Here's a gap. Maybe I should address this question and then collect data. And so now look at the lag that is inbuilt in that thinking. You know, First of all, when an article is published, it's already about four or five years old by the time it started the conception. And now you are trying to find a gap and then you are doing, that's another two, three years old. So generally, the at least the wisdom coming from academic journals, they're useful in different ways. They're useful to provide deep thinking and frameworks. But they're not very good in terms of trying to advise firms and how to move forward. It is not designed for that. So schools that rely predominantly on academic research and then also start doing teaching in the MBA program fall into that trap of then, you know, what's my incentive? I'm an academic researcher. What's my next SMJ or AMJ or whatever it is? And if I go into the classroom, I might just talk about again five forces or resource-based view or theory of the form and be done with it. But there are many other schools at IMD, I'm finding it refreshingly different, wherein you're constantly, about 60% of our business comes from custom programs. Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing a program for the top turbine company in the world or the top water pump company in the world, and I'm talking to their ex-core, ex uh, I can't go and talk about five forces. I have to give them ideas about what should they do with the business and what's the future. So the incentives are different for me at IMD. And because of that, the nature of education becomes different, wherein you are forced to be more relevant. And it's not that the academic roots are not there. You know, they don't disappear, right? I mean, most of us are with considerable experience and we have published on, we have articles in good journals and we have done all that. But we have gravitated to this place because of our interests and motivations are now different. That is, for me, it's far more gratifying to have at least one idea sink in with the CEO of a big firm to make them think slightly differently about how they run their business. That is far more gratifying than getting one more SMJ. But that's me. To answer your question, I think that till these new concepts start getting into the system, that is then enough researchers start saying, okay, this seems interesting. Data is different. We need to compete differently with data. The strength they have is the volumes. Then it gets institutionalized. So what I'm saying is that it's a little slower, but it happens. It's more like, you know, an, an elephant, right? But the, it's, it's a slow and steady, but it goes with systematic strengths that they build. So I've caught up. I mean, don't get me wrong. Great respect for that world. It's just that my interests are different right now. But I do see the issues there. That the way in which the incentive structure is designed, it rewards research which is generally old. Mm -hmm. And its strengths are more in terms of frameworks. And unless they get new empirical evidence and they develop new frameworks for that thinking, they'll keep giving and teaching older stuff. 
Interesting. Maybe academia is ready for a digital transformation of its own. <laughs> well, Mohan, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a wonderful, I mean, it's a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed it. Well, the book is called Future of Competitive Strategy. I'm going to put this on my recommended reading list for my course this summer. We'll chat again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>